Last Sunday, we looked at 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. And I shared with you the main idea that life is about choices. The choices that we make. And those choices have consequences. And though we can choose from various things, a lot of times we have absolutely no control over the consequences. Robert Louis Stevenson, uh, one of my favorite writers, Scottish novelist, essayist, essayist and even a poet, best known for his works, uh, Treasure Island, uh, or how about the strange case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. What you might not know about him is that he suffered from a serious bronchial uh, disorder that troubled him most of his life. In fact, he was only 44 years old when he passed away. All of that writing that we attribute and know of him all came before he was even 44 years of age. Maybe this statement of his is in fact autobiographical. In one of his writings he says, life is not a matter of holding good cards, but of playing a poor hand well. In an essay that he wrote titled, Old Mortality, he would write of how books were the proper remedy for addressing the various streams uh, of our life. And he would go on to identify the variety of books that are out there, and he would conclude by addressing uh, uh, what he called books of a large design, shadowing the complexity of that game of consequences to which we all sit down, the hanger back not least. Now, you may have heard the oft-quoted false version of that, that we all sit down to a banquet of consequences. Um, that's actually not found in his writings. What I quoted to you is the line that everybody believes that came from. But his point, his point was, is that life is about choices that have consequences of which we cannot choose. Today, as we move into chapter 2, I once again have an image for you. And the image comes from the 2014 movie titled Left Behind. That movie was adapted from the book series by Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins. Uh, and you may or may not be aware that the books were designated by Tim and Jerry as fiction. Made up. Merriam-Webster in the dictionary defines fiction as something invented by the imagination or fame, specifically an invented story. And that is what they are. The books were based on a false teaching. And I'll stand on this. They were based on a false teaching that didn't really even get its roots until 1830 that of a pre-tribulation rapture. And that was brought about by a woman named Margaret MacDonald in the United Kingdom. In 1830, she put herself into a self-induced trance hoping 
to create a prophetic utterance of some kind. And during that trance, she had a vision that the church would be pulled out of the world as things were getting bad. She later wrote this vision down in a letter and the Anglo-Irish Bible teacher named John Darby caught wind of it. John Darby took the vision that Margaret MacDonald had put uh, and put some theological study and some weight behind it. Now, exactly what level of influence Margaret MacDonald had on him has been debated, uh, but there's at least some. He was there present when she put herself into the induced trance. She did receive a letter from him. He traveled to the United uh, throughout the United Kingdom and then from there to the United States and he taught that new theology of a rapture in many of his lectures and one of the people who was influenced was a guy by the name of C.I. Schofield. That's right. The name probably is familiar because of the Schofield Reference Bible. Uh, and in the footnotes of the Schofield Reference Bible, Schofield explained what rapture theology was all about. And the Bible sold and grew in popularity, and as it did, so did belief in this rapture. Now, what we need to take note of is that the theology grew because of what was in the footnotes of the Bible not what was in the Word of God itself. Some of you have some reference Bibles. Read those helps that are in there, but test them. Make sure that they're accurate. Because a lot of them are misleading. Uh, in fact, uh, John W. McGarvey, J.W. McGarvey, in his commentary on Thessalonians, published in 1916, five years after his death uh, in 1911, says that 2 Thessalonians was written to correct, to correct the misapprehension that the Lord was about to come at once. He said, let no one deceive you, Paul would write. You see... False teachings are not new. And as we move on into chapter 2 of 2 Thessalonians, it's important for us to realize that it was not only persecutors from the outside who were disturbing the church, but false teachers as well. Those who were wolves in sheep's clothing. That's why when I saw this picture, I just loved it. In fact, I'm thinking about trying to get it framed, uh, blown up and framed. Because uh, here's the sheep, but underneath, wrapped in that costume of the sheep is that wolf. Uh, and that's what Paul said. Remember to the elders at Ephesus? He said, they're going to come among you like sheep, like wolves in sheep's clothing. Uh, John Stott reminds us that the intellectual assault on Christianity is often fiercer than the physical. And to be sure, both kinds of challenge are not only painful, they're not only disturbing, they not only cause havoc and trouble to us at times, right to our very core, but persecution 
even if it is only strong tension, can also be beneficial. A rubber band. A rubber band has to be flexed to remain flexible. Leave a rubber band sitting in a drawer for very long, go to use it, spread it out, pop! Every once in a while, go and flex those rubber bands and put them back. They'll last a whole lot longer. They need that tension. And so in chapter 2, Paul is first going to define the nature of the air, then uh, he's going to contradict it with a full exposition of what the truth is, and then he's going to express his confidence in the stability that the Thessalonian Christians had. So let's look to the text today. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to Him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come, past tense. Let no one deceive you in any way. For that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time? For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Did you hear that? The mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until it is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath. Did I miss something? Oh, with the breath, power, and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse the, to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. May God add His blessing to our reading of His Word today. Did you notice how Paul begins by pointing out the error of the false teachers? Uh, this particular false teaching, it had been making a headway there in Thessalonica, obviously, had to do with the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and being gathered together with Him. Now, you would not know this unless you studied the Greek language. I did not know this until I did study the Greek language. I'm not saying you have to study the Greek language. I'm just saying that somebody who is teaching God's Word needs to be making sure that those that he's teaching are aware of what Paul is actually saying. The verb that Paul uses here was used in his day to describe how the angels will assemble God's people on the last day. Judgment day. Not 
sometime prior a rapture. One gathering, and that's on the day of judgment. Now, both topics, Christ coming to us and going to Him, the unity of heaven and earth, those had been addressed by Paul as we saw back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 all the way through chapter 5. And at that time, the Thessalonians were troubled that the return of Christ did not come quickly enough. And some of their friends had died before it had taken place and so they were afraid that they were left out. Now, their problem was that maybe he had come too quickly because some of the teachers were saying that the Lord had already come. By the way, there is a modern version of this. That Christ had already come. It's found among the Jehovah's Witnesses. Their founder, Charles Russell, first taught that the world would end in 1874. By the way, it didn't. Uh, then he revised that to 1914. I'm not sure if you're aware, but the world didn't end then either. After this had passed, his successor, who was a, a, a judge, but uh, J.F. Rutherford, asserted that Christ did, did in fact come on October the 1st of 1914, but He came invisibly. Now, it's interesting to me that many who believe and teach a pre-tribulation rapture share that idea of a secret appearance. Because when they read the rest of the New Testament and they read the other passages about how He'll appear and there'll be trumpets and all of that, that doesn't go very well with Him appearing not once, but twice. And so they often teach that the rapture will be one that is secret and only the true believers will see Him and be called up to meet Him. Uh, it was in response to some similarly bizarre notion that Paul, in fact, was writing this paragraph. And so he begs the Thessalonians with very strong affection as his brothers and sisters not to be easily unsettled. In other words, shaken from your mind. Not to be alarmed, which deals with a continued state of anxiety. And the source of their confusion, he says, was a prophecy, a report, or a letter that supposedly came from him or his associates. And the false teachers were claiming Paul's authority with that teaching. And so Paul denies that their teaching has any stamp of approval. In fact, he contradicts it. Don't let anyone deceive you. It's bad enough to be unsettled or alarmed. It would be even worse for them to be deceived. So Paul clarifies the order of future events. The day of the Lord cannot be here already, he says, because that day will not come until two things happen. A certain event must take place and a certain person must appear. The event he calls the rebellion. And the person is the man of lawlessness, the rebel. And although Paul doesn't call him the Antichrist, this is evidently who he is. 
He'll be in the world, Paul says, before he emerges into public view. But only when the rebel is revealed, verse 3, will the rebellion break out. Paul had told him this and more about the man of lawlessness when he was with them. And so he chides him a little bit. Don't you remember that when I was with you, I used to tell you these things? Now, unfortunately, we don't know exactly what his teaching was. But the safeguard against deception and the remedy against false teaching is in fact to hold on to the original teaching of the apostles. To be students of God's Word. The Thessalonians must neither imagine that Paul had changed his mind nor even swallow ideas that were incompatible with what he had taught them. Even if it was claimed that these ideas came from him. Loyalty to apostolic teaching now permanently enshrined in the New Testament is in fact the test of truth. Test the spirits. How do we test them? By God's Word. We need to be students of God's Word. And so Paul continues by sharing the truth about the rebellious Antichrist. And in this section, Paul goes on to elaborate details of the rebellion, its leader, its outbreak, its dynamics. And in the last half of verse 3, and there in verse 4, Paul introduces who the chief leader, the leader of the rebellion, is, and he uses four names. I like John Stott's four titles. He calls him the antinomian, which means man of lawlessness uncompromising hostility to the law. The doomed, the man doomed to destruction, the son of destruction. The enemy, that person who will oppose everything that is called God, being committed to godliness. And also he calls him the climber, that person who's going to exalt himself, not one that's going to be lifted up. Exalt himself over God. In blatant Self uh, aggrandizement, looking at himself, lifting himself up. It seems to be the first and the last of these that Paul really emphasizes. They characterize uh, Antichrist in relationship to two things God and the law. And they declare him to be relentlessly opposed to both. First, There will be opposition to the law. Paul calls him a man of lawlessness in both verses 3 and 8. Presumably he means defiant of the law. Both the moral law and the civil law. Jesus himself predicted that in the future, because of the increase of wickedness, and, and the word there is onomia, which is the negative and the word for law. No law. Lawlessness. Jesus said, because of the increase in wickedness or lawlessness, the love of most will grow cold. Secondly, not only opposition to the law, but opposition to God. Verse 4 there, do you see it? He's going to exalt himself against every so-called God. Uh, An expression that's used to talk about opposition of evil to God. 
in addition, he sets himself up, meaning he takes his seat, he enthrones himself. His overtones uh, are that of brazen arrogance. So Paul continues by saying, he's going to proclaim himself to be God. And guess what happened shortly after and about the time that Paul was martyred on the Apian Way there outside of Rome. The Caesar started saying, you need to worship us because we are sons of God and therefore divine. So the two principal targets, God and law, or religion and ethics, are two essential ingredients of culture. It's the glue that bonds a community together. And think about it. I date a lot of the problems going on in our society today to the writing of a man by the name of Benjamin Spock. Benjamin Spock taught that we should not punish our children at all. That we need to be guiding them and helping them with their creativity. And that when we discipline them, we are squelching their creativity. And so, a whole generation of parents were raised up with that belief, and we ended up with a whole group that had no understanding of authority and respect for authority. Then we decided to take anything related to God out of the school system. What else should we expect than where we're at now? But who is He? Who will He be? And here's my question. Is there any possibility that we, 20 centuries after Paul was writing, can even positively identify the person he had in mind? I don't think so. I think we need to be humble when we look at it. Uh, the text indicates that Paul had taught the Thessalonians privately about who this person was, but we don't have that teaching. And church history is literally littered with mistaken attempts to find in Paul's text a reference to some contemporary person or some contemporary event. All the time people are saying, well, look at this. This is talking about the last times, the end and all. Paul was an Old Testament scholar. And Paul knew that Daniel's prophecies were still partially unfulfilled. And so in consequence, he repeated them, borrowing some of the phrases directly from Daniel as he did this. But at the same time, universalizing them. And so the picture Paul paints is of a rebellion which is global rather than local and the an Antichrist who is far more than just a contemporary figure. Do you know that there is only one book in the Bible, only one author that even uses the word Antichrist? Paul doesn't use it here in Thessalonians. John doesn't use it in Revelation. The only place you find it is in 1 John chapter 2. 
John assumes that his readers are familiar with the expectation of the coming of this Antichrist. And so in verse 18 and following, he says, Children, it is the last hour. Do you hear that? Are we living in the last days? Well, if John thought it was the last hour when he wrote, obviously we're living in the last days. We have been since the ascension. We will be until He comes back. Children, it's the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know it's the last hour. What's John saying? He's saying, hey, you don't have to look 2,000 years from now to wait for somebody who is going to be a political leader of some country or some church that's going to be Antichrist. There are plenty of Antichrists already around and doing everything they can to deny who Jesus is. That He is, in fact, God in the flesh. That's the test that John goes on to prove, say needs to be proven. The liar is the one that denies who Jesus is. And in terms of the rebellion, Paul doesn't specify what the rebellion, when the rebellion will take place and what form, but he uses a word for it, and the Greek word is apostasia. Apostasia. Apostasy. In classical Greek, it meant either a military revolt or a political defection. In the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it does get applied to religious apostasy, namely Israel's rebellion against God. And Paul uses a series of time references in order that the Thessalonians may grasp the order of the events. As you know what is restraining him now, or and you know what is restraining him now, Verse 6, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness, present tense, is already at work. Two processes now going on simultaneously. The one hand, the secret power of lawlessness is at work. Secondly, there is something restraining it. What was the restraint? John talks about it in Revelation. He says Satan was going to be bound for this thousand years. We're living in that thousand years. He says Satan's going to be bound. How is he bound? By the Holy Spirit and the church. He can't carry out mass destruction if we are doing our jobs working alongside the Holy Spirit. But we aren't living in that period of rebellion, that period of lawlessness. And so, without going into any more detail, let me sum up that whole paragraph. What Paul has unfolded is a historical process in three stages. Now is the time of restraint. We're living in a time in which Satan is bound. We're living in an age in which the secret power of lawlessness is being held in check by means of the Holy Spirit in the church. We are even living in the time of rebellion. 
in which the controls of law have been removed bit by bit. Our current situation is an example of that. How much sense does it make to defund the police that are there to help protect us? Just removing those bits bit by bit. History is not a random series of meaningless events. It's a succession of periods and happenings which are all under the sovereignty of God umbrella. I don't believe God's micromanaging events. In regard to my cousin, somebody that I love dearly, posted, everything happens in its right time. Don't ask me to accept the belief that God chose a time for my cousin Kathleen to die. Now, it's the result of the evil and destruction of sicknesses that are in this world. Remember what the Bible says in terms of who is the ruler of this world. Jesus himself twice says, Satan is the ruler of this world. I go back to the story of Esther. Mordecai says to Esther, maybe you've been put into the position you're at as as a queen for, for just this opportunity. Esther doesn't want to go before the king because she says, if I go before the king without permission, it can mean my death. Remember how Mordecai responds? Esther, whether you go or not, God is going to achieve His plan. If you choose not to do it, He's still going to achieve His plan, but you and your family aren't going to be protected. In other words, you and your family are going to die. But God's still going to achieve His plan. The end of the story is set. And if we don't rise up to do God's work, somebody else will rise up and that task will be taken care of. But he's not micromanaging Chauncey's life to say, Chauncey, on Sunday morning I want you to preach this sermon out of 2 Thessalonians. Uh, you know, we decided that prayerfully and considerately when Kay and Cindy and I chatted about it months ago. But I believe God can use this and I believe that God will use the way that my cousin lived for good results. So what's Paul's exhortation to them? Well, it's basically to stand firm. Stand firm. Stability is coveted. It's a coveted quality in every sphere of life. 
Governments talk about stabilizing the economy. Builders endeavor to construct stable houses. Carpenters work hard to build stable furniture. When Rich and Eric and I rebuilt the back of the pickup truck and made it into a flatbed, we sat that thing on there and we did everything we could to rock it and move it to make sure it was going to be stable before we welded it down. Because if it hadn't been stable in an unwelded situation, once it was welded, those welds would have eventually cracked and broke. Aircraft, ships, they all have stabilizers to counteract the turbulence and the ocean swells. And you and I have to admit that we admire a person who has a stable personality, a stable character, who is stable in their convictions. And the New Testament says much about Christian stability. In Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians, he declared, Now we really live since you're standing firm in the Lord. And here in 2 Thessalonians, back in chapter 2, he urged them not to become uneasily settled. He's about to issue the exhortation, so then, brothers, stand firm. In the words of Jesus, we're not to be like reeds shaken by the wind, but rather be rock-like, immovable. So here's my challenge for you today. How did I get back to there? Was it moving while I was talking? Oh, I didn't I didn't read those last two verses. That's what it is. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ Himself and our God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace. Comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and deed. My challenge is for us to accept that comfort. Be established in our good works. Be established in the Word. You know, having expressed his thanks to God for having chosen and called these Christians at Thessalonica, Paul not only exhorts them to stand firm, but now he prays that God's going to establish them. Christian praise and Christian prayer belong together. The praise God had to praise God for his promises, but also to pray because prayer is God's appointed way of enabling him to do what he's promised to do and enabling us to inherit his promises. God's promises and his prayers cannot be separated. So that's my challenge for this week. Are you troubled? A lot of reasons recently to be troubled, not only in the local community, but in my family, extended family situation. Be comforted. Be comforted. Stand in those promises that God told you. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you today seeking wisdom from your word. Help us not to develop false hopes. Jesus said, He didn't come to take us out of the world. 
Why would we even want to think that somehow he would rapture us out of the world and leave behind those who are evil? Now, even Jesus in his parables talked that he would gather the weeds first and burn them and then take us to our reward. Father, thank you for those promises. Help us to rest secure in the knowledge that even though we die, we yet can live because of your Son, Jesus. In whose name we pray. Amen. Our hymn of commitment this morning is Have Thine Own Way. We're going to sing two verses.